you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. You know, last week, or I guess it's um, well, about a week ago now, the House passed the, you know, what, what do you want to call it? The BIF, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, the Infrastructure Bill. I think it actually has some, like, technical actual name that I don't even remember right now. But in any case, that was that was a big moment from a number of different angles uh some good uh some arguably within the within the context of democratic politicking maybe a little more shaky um but it did kind of reshuffle the deck and if not move us out of what has seemed like a kind of a deepening and darkening uh picture for democrats going into 2022 it at least changed the questions that we're talking about and unsurprisingly since it passed we've seen a it is it is quickly developed into a new party purity test on the GOP side 13 Republican house members voted for it and there is at least a a move now i can't i very hard time believing they're actually going to go through with it or that it'll be successful but to strip those members of their committee assignments and in the US political system that that in effect means you're expelling someone from the party. That is kind of all, that, that, that's what you get for being a member of a political party. And the idea that you would, I mean, that happens when people get caught killing someone <laughs> or in a bribery sting or you know something like that. The idea or saying something like incredibly racist or something, um, the idea that you would do that for voting for a piece of, fairly unremarkable in ideological terms legislation is really you know beyond unprecedented to even talk about it and just to remind ourselves you know 19 republicans voted for this thing in the senate so this was already not at all a party line thing that one of the, what we saw this morning i guess uh ex president trump uh, gave a speech at the nr NRCC, the, the House Republican Campaign Committee dinner, where he launched into these people, somewhat like he did uh, a few months ago with the ones who voted, well, first the ones who voted to impeach him, then the ones who voted for you know various permutations of investigations of January 6th. And uh, the, one of the members is, is the congresswoman from Staten Island, who, uh, you know, there aren't a lot of Republicans in New York City, right? Elected Republicans. Uh, she's the only one in the House. And at least in the reporting of the New York Post, she was like crestfallen, like, uh, the, you know, our, 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 our savior, Donald Trump is attacking me. What am I going to do? So we're seeing this whole thing. It's, 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 it is, uh, it has advanced us to kind of to a, a a new reality. I have done a couple posts basically saying how this brings up all sorts of fissures in the in the contemporary GOP. And Democrats really need to exploit those fissures, not just today and this week, but like every day for the next 12 months. Because, you know, after that bill passed, and again, I think it was losing I, I think I permanently lost track of time with the pandemic. <laughs> it's no longer an excuse since we're a year and a half in. Uh, I think it was last Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, in any case, so almost a week ago. And right afterwards, all sorts of Republic all the Republicans put out these statements why they voted no. Remember, all but 13 voted no. And 
they had some differences, but they all followed a pretty clear formula. Um, and there was basically, no one supports infrastructure more than me. I am representative infrastructure from the state of infrastructure. I'm so into this stuff, but I could not vote for this. Some, some of them said because it was at night. It came up at night, and I, I'm not going to go for voting at night. In other cases, um, I couldn't vote for it because there's this other different bill that Democrats support, and I don't support that one, so I'm not voting for this one. Okay, that, that really does not make any sense. And in other cases, just, well, this was not really infrastructure at all. Um, it only, sa- it, it only uh, spent $9 on infrastructure, and it's a, a socialist Trojan horse. But the problem there is, again, 19 Republican senators, including Mitch McConnell, voted for this thing. It puts them in a tough position. When they explain why they wanted to vote against this, they seem silly. And that means the Democrats need to be asking them this constantly for the next year. This is how you this is how you work at politics in advance of an election. You know, there's a lot that um there's a lot about this midterm that is just beyond Democrats' control. They can't undo the fact that it's the first midterm in a Democratic president's term of office. They can't undo the fact that Republicans have the dominant hand in redistricting, which puts them kind of behind the eight ball. You can say they should have passed the the uh, For the People Act, but you know <laughs> they can't get past a mansion and 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 uh, and and cinema, and they can't entirely control COVID or the economy. But these things you can control, and so it's really it's 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 very key. Now, now what we are going to talk about in a moment is what about the other thing? What about the rec- reconciliation bill? What about the BBB, the Build Back Better Act? And uh, that's a real question because the rest of the, you know, the, the progressive caucus, the sort of the, the leftward half of the, of the caucus in the House held out for a long time, but finally got some fairly, fairly hard commitments from their House colleagues and they took the plunge. It's, but it's really not going to come down to the House colleagues, I think. It's going to come down to what, you know, what Mansion and Cinema are going to do. I think it's going to, but we're, we're going to talk about that. Now, before we do that, let me remind you that the uh, the Josh Marshall podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. While you're packing up the kids, dogs, and sweaters for your annual visit to your in-laws' house, don't forget to pack a Grady's Cold Brew kit because without proper planning, drinking a single sip from your mother-in-law's moldy coffee pot will make it even harder on your stomach than watching O-A-N-N over family dinner. This is a very ad copies very tightly integrated <laughs> with our subject matter. It was a great thing about Grady's. Luckily, the Grady's cold brew kit makes it easy to drink delicious coffee on the go. Just toss in some bean bags, add water, stick the pouch in the fridge overnight, and you'll have smooth, flavorful coffee all week long. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Okay, Co-host Kate Riga, what let's let's jump right into uh, is is the Build Back Better Act, the reconciliation bill. Is that just vanishing now, or what's the what's the story? Yeah, so l- let's take it to Friday quickly. So the way that Friday worked was all day was back in this kind of will they won't they where we were before. Are they going to be able to get these two bills off the ground or not? Because the fundamentals hadn't changed since the last time they had this standoff. You know, progressives were unwilling to give their votes to the bipartisan infrastructure plan and give away their leverage on the reconciliation bill. So they'd been holding out at first for a full Senate vote on the reconciliation bill first to make sure that Manchin and Cinema were on the hook for that legislation. Then they kind of softened that and said, okay, fine, we're okay with just either a promise from Joe Biden that he has all 50 votes or, you know, public statements, something promising from Manchin and Cinema that they will be there when reconciliation finally comes up for a vote. None of that happened on Friday. Nothing really demonstrably changed. But for some reason, progressives kind of arrived at the conclusion that this was the best that they were going to get. So they got a promise from the House moderates that those people would be there on reconciliation, even though, like you said, Josh, that's never really been kind of that the biggest point of fear. That wasn't seen as the fear. problem. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. 
So they got that promise and a promise that the House would vote on the reconciliation text the week of November 15th. So that's next week when Congress returns from recess. And the progressive said, OK, fine, and we're going to vote for it. Most of the progressives, the squad, you know, AOC, Presley, Cory Bush, that group all voted no. And that stance kind of makes the most sense from an outsider perspective because nothing changed. They didn't really get anything that ensures that Manchin and Cinema won't, on the one hand, gut the reconciliation bill, or on the other hand, vote it down altogether. And that's kind of where we are now. Like there just aren't a lot of leverage points left. You know, I reached out to the White House earlier this week to ask if there had been a date planned for Joe Biden to sign the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which he hasn't done yet, which could be a potential point of leverage. Um, They basically said, no, we don't have any specific date, pointed me towards the president's statement this weekend where he said, I want all the lawmakers who worked so hard on this to be able to attend a signing ceremony. So on, on that point, you know, pretty soon we'll be able to tell if that's real or if he's quietly trying to maintain this point of leverage based on whether or not that signing ceremony happens next week or if he kind of makes up a new excuse with why he's not signing it. But aside from that, there's not a lot left to kind of force Manchin or Cinema's hands here. Well, have you, from talking to people on the Hill, like, is mm-hmm. there a process? Is there a schedule? Do we Do we know... At what, like, this has proceeded over the last four or five months with a series of more or less hard or soft deadlines. Mm-hmm. And and those have, those have almost all been blown, but they at least give you a sense of the terrain. Like, okay, you know, it, we're building towards this, we're building towards that. I, I guess in the agreement they made with this handful of House moderates, um, they got uh, November 15th as as when they'll vote on it in the House. But mm-hmm. obviously, that's not really the whole thing. So is there any word on any of this? Yeah. So before Friday, the plan was the House is going to pass both on that day. The next week, this week that we're in now, while Congress is away, the parliamentarian was going to go over the text, the reconciliation text from the House, scrub it you know, do the bird bathy stuff, all that. And then the Senate would come back and somehow, if everything goes exactly according to plan, be able to vote on the reconciliation bill next week and then hope that the differences between the House and the Senate text aren't so great that you need to do a conference committee and send it back to the House. So, I mean, that was the timeline before the House kind of dropped the ball on voting for reconciliation. And even that, you know, as some senators are telling me it, we're just kind of like, really? I mean, maybe this could happen if like no one slows down the process and everything goes exactly according to plan, which, as we've seen, hasn't happened with anything this term. And now that they didn't pass reconciliation and the House is going to have to pass it next week, you just shove that whole timeline back an additional week for the parliamentarian to go through it. And, you know, have then there'll be the voteramas and... Okay, but let's take, let's take that timeline on its mm-hmm. face, uh, even if even if we grant that that um, this year hasn't given us a lot of reason to take timelines on their face. So that would mean that uh, the House votes on their version of the reconciliation bill sometime next week. I mm-hmm. guess it was it was on or before the fifteenth, which is uh, a little less than a week now. Okay, and then. What so then it goes over the parliamentarian works it over for what a week or so. Mm-hmm. That's if what it people goes are telling a, me. Yeah, according to plan. Okay, and then I guess if if Mansion and Cinema then agree on it, then it goes to this Voterama thing, which for our listeners is as part of the reconciliation process, you have to create this thing where kind of everyone and their uncle, who's one of the hundred. U.S. senators can like propose amendments and it's a lot of poison pill amendments and grandstanding, but it just takes time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a few days. And then you have the vote. So it sounds like what you're saying is that um, getting, if everything went to according to plan, that this would mean passing the bill around December 1st, give or take early December. Um, go ahead. Right. Even though the the more likely kind of addendum to that timeline is that 
Manchin insists on stuff like stripping the paid leave provision out, which the House put in their reconciliation text, um, and depending on kind of what other hewing down they do, there probably will have to be a conference committee. And then the House progressives will probably have to swallow more bitter pills there because they're going to have to kind of repass a reconciliation text that has some stuff they wanted taken out. Probably not a ton of stuff, but some. Now, tell us, explain to us why it's such a problem if if they have to go to a conference committee. It's not that it's a, a problem so much. It's just like, you know, Basically, the reason you need a conference committee is if the House and Senate versions of the bill are different, if they have they need to be reconciled together. So basically, it's just it's going to be a point of contention, right? With things like paid leave, for example, which is something progressives feel really passionately about and is one of those issues where Manchin is like the sole reason why it's not in the bill. And that is just really hard for people to swallow. So, you know, there's he'll he would likely say, you need my vote. I'm not going to, I don't want to do paid leave. So they have to strip it out. Um, new version of the bill goes back to the House. And then I mean, what are progressives going to do at that point? You know, they kind of have to just hold their nose and. and well, and isn't it. it to be, I'm not sure fair is the right word, but to be fair, kind of we've, we litigated this kind of a week ago, yeah. right? I mean, it's not like it, it it's not like a week ago, we thought there was going to be paid leave and now we're going to find out that even paid leave is stripped away. I mean, it was kind of, they made that pretty clear last week. I think that's true. I think it's just, there is a great deal of frustration because people feel strongly about this provision and his reason for not wanting to do it is even like on his gradient of stupid reasons for not wanting to do things like very, very stupid. And remind us, what is that reason? Was it that it's, it has to be temporary in the way they want to do it? Or what's the what's the story? Yeah, I mean, it basically boils down to him saying he doesn't want to affect such big policy changes through reconciliation. And he, he knows that there are some Republicans who will get on board with this, which I mean, I think just has people kind of throwing up their hands because what does that mean? You don't want to do big policy through reconciliation. That's currently the only way to govern thanks to your devotion to the filibuster. So... You know, and it's also the fact that I mean, even even in the sort of the mansion micro version of reconciliation, you've already kind of crossed that path. I mean, you're talking yep. about spending upwards of two trillion dollars in 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 a you know a lot of stuff. It's it's it's. I mean, I guess I guess you could argue that having it be a, it's not a federal entitlement exactly, but having that be a kind of locked in part of the social contract in the United States is a is a significant change. It's not increasing eligibility for something or these, you know, all these different kinds of, you know, fiddling with the dials. It's a, it's a big thing, which is why people support it. Right. Um, and it's funny that it does seem, and I would, I imagine that this is, or I, I have seen that this is one of the big, um, you know, one of the big reasons people are having a hard time swallowing this, that it's extremely popular. It's very, very popular. I mean, it's sort of, it, it's among the most popular parts of this. So it's pretty, you know, it's, it's not like, uh, I don't know what the least... You know, it's not the sort of the, the the federal defund the police bill of 2022. I mean, it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's, 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 uh, it's popular. So, um, right. I yeah. mean, and if he actually kind of cared about getting it passed, then there is an alternate option. He could say there actually is Republican support for a paid leave bill. Here are the ones I've talked to. Here are you know, 10 to 15 of them that are are down for it. But the reality is, you know, he'll just be like, well, I've been talking to Susan Collins about it. And it terrific. You know, Susan gets on board and then the vote crashes up against a Republican filibuster and fails 51 to 49. You know, it's just it's the same stuff he's been doing with the voter bills. He right, keeps right. doing this really disingenuous thing where he's like, I can I can get Republican support. And then he gets Lisa Murkowski. And it's like that. <laughs> it makes no difference. You know, it makes no difference. You know, it's right, just he wants right, to say right, it. Right, right, right. Okay. So it, it, it seems like what you're telling me, and this is consistent with what I've heard, what I've sensed, is that it seems like this relatively slenderized version of the BBB will pass sometime in December. 
it would have to be relatively early since they all clear out. You know, there's there's more and more recesses and vacations and stuff like that. Um, but I guess we'll just we'll see at this point. And and the but but for our listeners, the next sort of tentpole in this in this process is on or about November fifteenth that the House will vote for it, and these moderates, quote unquote, who were the holdup in the House, have committed to they're going to vote for it uh, with the you know exception of what they call technical fixes. Mm-hmm. So, and that's so we'll know we're one step further forward if and when that happens, I guess. Right, and honestly, I I don't see at this point House moderates kind of turning on that promise. That would be a pretty drastic thing. But there is the only thing that gives me any kind of pause there is that. We're still waiting on a CBO score. Some pieces of it have been scored. The CBO said yesterday that as early as this week, they're going to start releasing scores for disparate parts of the bill. Right, right, right. And that is a potential point that we could see moderates make a lot of hay out of if it shows that the you know the, the bill would increase the deficit. Um, so that's something also to keep your eye out for, which will be you know kind of the next couple weeks. Right. Even though again, I almost think. I think that if that the bigger danger there to me is that Manchin sees the CBO score and freaks out. You know, he tweeted right. something kind of ominous today about the danger of inflation. And it's just going to be like that. It's going to be every word he says, people are going to be watching with bated breath, waiting to see, you know, oh my God, is he going to blow this whole thing up at this kind of 11th hour? And it's something I've just been really weighing in my head ever since watching the progressives give their vote to the bipartisan bill because I just, after watching how they've acted for all these weeks, you know, my kind of default was they must assume that they just can't get anything better at this point, that Manchin and Cinema are never going to promise to vote for reconciliation. And that, you know, maybe it was the Virginia election that spooked the rest of the Democrats enough to convince them that they can't just remain in stasis. They have to do something. Um, I mean, I think that's a a fairly likely theory, but it just it leaves us in this this land where the, the House progressives are trying to keep us from for weeks. Right, right, where it's right. just Mansion and Cinema have all the cards because they don't seem to really care if anything passes or not with reconciliation. So then you're left, you know, with this hope and a prayer that Mansion has kind of come through on the big stuff in the past. He's never killed stuff that he could have killed, and we haven't really seen a lot of proof that Cinema is willing to be out on that limb as the sole no vote by herself. But so you're kind of left making educated guesses based on past patterns of behavior. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I think it was the right decision to vote for this thing. Um, even though I thought it was also the right decision for the progressives to hold the line up until, you know, a week ago, it's a tough decision, but the, The Virginia election, and we can, you know, there's all the sort of the different ways you can interpret what happened. Um, The bigger thing to me is the president's popularity. You know, this is this is hurting the Democrats a lot, and it seemed clear to me that as much as it sucks, these two were never going to go along with this. They just weren't. And you can say, well, that's all the more reason not to trust them. But I mean, I think this was I think this was the right decision. I'm cautiously optimistic that this will go through. I will say it, it it's hard to pry these pieces apart because the stuff in the Build Back Better bill is not really inflation moving one way or another. But because it's it's over a significant period of time it just doesn't it's you know the what was arguably in that category was the relief bill at the beginning of the year we pumped a lot of money out into the economy but you know there was um another report this morning that had you know it's hard to say any one month but certainly can be interpreted as as inflation accelerating and that is a that will add to these um you know, weak knees about the Build Back Better Act, even if it's not really have any logical connection to it. And it also has some, you know, some real challenges for Democrats uh, for 2022 and 2024, if this doesn't, um, if this doesn't unwind on its own, because the way you uh, get inflation under control is to raise interest rates, is to slow down the economy. That, that never helps politically. 
um, in in a lot of ways that, uh, you know, that's what happened. That's what Paul Volcker did in the early 80s, blah, 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 blah. Everybody has to, I mean, you have to hope for when you fill your gas tank that these inflationary pressures, which are really almost entirely driven by these, you know, supply chain, quote unquote, issues, that these work themselves out just because it's not great for prices to keep going up. But also politically, it's a real, it is a real um, danger for Democrats just because they're the ones in power right now. And and when there's discontent, the people in power um, don't have a good time, don't have good election nights. So that's uh, that's where we are. So what's an, okay? What is the so we've we've dealt with the BBB. I guess mm-hmm. also speaking about 2022. Now we're kind of getting we're starting to get some visibility into recruitment and the Senate and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, tis the season where I'm starting to get texts from you know, people working on in various campaigns saying, hey, you know, it's been a while, would love to reconnect. So that's how you know. Um, you know, it's funny, there was um, someone did uh, a, a tweet a couple days ago, or uh, yesterday, and it was one of these ones like, say something that is, you know, doesn't seem like it'd be true, but is true or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I did in two, the early 2004, I got an email uh, from it wasn't from Obama. It was from, an, you know, someone setting something up says, hey, this guy, Barack Obama is coming to DC. This is when I lived in DC. He's coming to DC. He'd love to grab coffee with you. And, you know, he loves TPM. He wants to chat. And um, obviously he wasn't president yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> he was running for Senate. And at the time, uh, Barack Obama was really kind of a man of destiny because when he ran for Senate, first his main competitor in the um, in the primary, his campaign exploded over uh, div- a divorce case was opened up, and I can't remember exactly. I don't want to libel anybody, but abuse, bad stuff, and so he was out. And that was one of the big reasons why Obama won the nomination. And then he goes up against this guy Ryan, the Republican, who was married to Jerry Ryan, or actually recently divorced from Jerry Ryan, seven of nine in uh, in. Um, Star Trek Voyager, right? Mm-hmm. And they had been divorced. And then some press organization opened up that thing. And it came out that one of her complaints was that he forced her to go to sex clubs and have sex in public. And like, boom, wow. then candidate Ryan disappears and suddenly Barack Obama's senator. Um, in any case, at, at the time, 2004, you know, I was still kind of doing TPM uh totally on my own. And it was kind of when the site was still on this kind of meteoric trajectory. And I, I've never been a particularly organized person. I never even got back to them because I was just too busy. So this is your reminder. You're going to get something from a future president and you're going to (laughs) be kicking yourself 20 years later. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's funny because we had this bad election night for Democrats last week lost the Virginia governor's mansion, barely hung on to the governor's mansion in New Jersey. Um, And it was, you know, kind of doom and gloom. It was prepared. This is what the midterms are going to be. And then it's funny because this week, I think you could argue had a quite a bit of good news for Democrats looking ahead to 2022. Perhaps one of the biggest was that Chris Sununu, the governor of New Hampshire, decided that he's not going to challenge Senator Maggie Hassan in 2022. He's going to run for another term as governor. And not only did he say he's not going to run for Senate, he kind of he went out of his way to list the reasons why working as a senator is a bad job and why he doesn't want it and how all these people from George W. Bush to current senators swayed him away from the job and he doesn't want to be there just doing partisan bickering and getting nothing done. I mean, it was quite, quite a speech given that he was being, you know, feted by by McConnell personally and that Rick Scott had flown out to meet him, to wine and dine him. Like they wanted him to run really badly. McConnell's former campaign manager tweeted unbelievable right while he was doing his announcement. I mean, it was Quite a smack in the face, it seems. And, and 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 a key point being, which underscores this, he didn't give them a heads up. 
Right. Yep. Which is really, uh, I mean, it's funny to me since I don't wish them well electorally, but that's really a breach that there's like, I mean, I, I suspect he just didn't want to have the conversation. Yeah. Like I know, I know what you're going to say. It's not going to be fun. So why don't you hear it on TV? Um, but that's like, that's like a real breach. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's not nice. Um, and I'm not sure he was a shoe in, but like the Sununu, I mean, the Sunu. for those of you who, who aren't that familiar with uh, uh, New Hampshire politics, the Sununu family is kind of like, there's something in the constitution that oh, they're the only ones who can run <laughs> for statewide office. You know, Sununu's the dad, who must be in his 80s by now, um, was governor back in the 80s. And then was chief of staff, a very controversial chief of staff for the older George Bush. And then I'm trying to think if I get the names right. I think it's John Sununu. So he was the governor. John Sununu was senator. Wait, was he also governor? Was John Sununu also governor and then senator? Are you talking and about any- the dad or the brother? The brother. I know the brother was a senator. I don't think he I was think governor. He, I think he was in the House and then the Senate. Yeah. And then the younger brother is now the governor. So basically, they just kind of pass these. But it's a the family obviously has all sorts of juice in Republican politics. And and my sense is that he's been pretty popular, mm-hmm. the current guy. Um, so, but yeah, so so that would have been New Hampshire's not it. You know, kind of a blue state, but it's also has a you know still has a lot of strong republican leanings so having a popular incumbent governor that's really going to have you know work cut out for her for Maggie Hassan in a in a kind of a bad year for democrats so that's a a, a big stroke of luck that democrats got there yeah i mean maggie hassan won this seat from kelly how do you say it a Ayotte, from yeah. Kelly Ayot by 1,017 votes in 2016. So, I mean, it's also I mean, true there's only 3,000 voters in, in the whole state of <laughs> New Hampshire, point, but, but still, yeah. So, you know, that seat is going to be a, a huge target. And then on top of that, you have in 2020, Biden won New Hampshire by about six points, six, seven points. Sununu won re-election by like 30, 35 points. So, you know, the Republicans saw this him entering this race as one of their best flip opportunities. So is um, he's running for a third term? Fourth. Wait, do they still have the two year terms there? Or is it four? Oh, they do. Yeah. Two year terms because he just won in 2020 and he's running again in 2022. Right. So they run every cycle. You have to keep running every cycle. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny. I actually, when I, um, when I moved to Rhode Island to go to graduate school in the, in the early nineties, they had just moved from the two year governor system there. It's Mm. kind of old school. It used to be a more common thing. And in some ways it's almost, you know, why not? Right. You can experiment a little more at the state level. It's, you know, presidency, whatever. In any case, that's yeah. When so I say good. it sucks, so, I meant for the incumbent. I would yeah, hate to run that much. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's also they have, you know, they have this just kind of unreal system in um in in New Hampshire where they have a massive state legislature. I think like their house is as big as the House of Representatives. And oh, really? And, and they have that. this, I mean, maybe it's not quite as big, but it's massive. And it is a, uh, they have two reps. So I don't know, the population is maybe a million and a half or a little less. I don't know exactly. But it's a pretty small state. And so like in the house, you can be, it's, you know, it's, it's a part-time legislature. I don't, if they're paid, maybe they're paid a per diem and you get elected in the house and you represent like a hundred people. I mean, not literally, but, but pretty close. It's, it's a, it's a unique politics, which is, you know, not a lot of else up to do up there. So (laughs) sounds fun. So, right. So we have Democrats basically heaving this big sigh of relief that they dodged this bullet. Um, You know, I, I reached out to the Hassan campaign and they were basically like, we expect this race to be competitive regardless of who runs. I mean, that's just kind of a fact of how how slim the margins were in 2016. Um, but, you know, the big, obvious, super popular guy who would have been a massive threat to Democrats, he's out of the equation. And he made it very clear as he took himself out of the equation that being a Republican in, in the Senate sucks and that he did not want that job. 
Yeah. And, and it does. What are the other examples? Because there's, I guess they want, is it Steve Ducey, who's the, who's the governor of Arizona? Um, uh, it's wait. Ducey. I can't remember if his name's Steve or not. Yeah. In any case, Republican governor of Arizona. Um, I, I'm not sure. Super popular. Doug Ducey. But That's it. Doug, Doug Ducey. Steve Ducey's the guy. He's the Fox guy, I think. Um, oh, yeah. The, the, yeah, no the one Fox always fights guy. with the press secretary. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, popular incumbent and my understanding, and there's this other guy who's like the attorney general. Basically, if you can get a popular incumbent governor to run in a good year, man, you really have the inside lane. But I think there, I mean, that one's still not determined, but they at least haven't gotten, have not gotten him to agree yet. Um, and so possibly you have something developing like what happened in 2010, which is, as most of us remember, uh, the Democrats got clobbered and they lost control of the House, but they didn't lose control of the Senate in 2010 in Obama's first midterm. And they actually, the Republicans, it took them two more cycles. They only did it in 2014. And the reason basically was they were getting these like Tea Party whack jobs who, who just would kind of crash and burn in the general election. And so you could be seeing something like this develop um, with the different dynamic that you got Trump there. And, you know, uh, I think we're going to, well, tell us about the situation in Pennsylvania. That's yeah, another sort of permutation yeah. of a similar story. Yeah. The other one we've been following where Sean Parnell was the leading Republican nominee who then, you know, funnily enough, kind of in the same vein of the stuff we were talking about with Obama's race, he's in the middle of a, you know, bitter, what, it's custody, not divorce. They're already divorced. Both. Uh, I think they're probably conjoined, but, you know, a family mm -hmm. pulling apart situation. I mean, the custody is is the sort of the, so to speak, the child of the divorce. They're inherently related. Right. Which is, you know, all kinds of just nasty stuff is coming out. You know, um, his wife accusing him of strangling her and, and hurting the children as well. Um, and so all of that's kind of, you know, volcanoing out into the open and obviously totally dragging down his candidacy. He also has the Trump endorsement. So now is it isn't that kind of it's not that he was the leading guy and then Trump endorsed him that my understanding is, is that Trump came into a pretty unsettled mm -hmm. contest and, very and kind of anointed him made his yeah. choice. Yeah. yeah. And so and and you know we had a uh, among the editors at TPM we had a conversation this morning kind of saying you know these are accusations coming out of a divorce slash custody proceeding. And most of us, know, a lot of things get said in those proceedings. And you have to kind of see it through, you know, he hasn't been charged with anything. This is, it's an adversarial, um, uh, you know, it's an adversarial process. But what his wife has accused it, him of is not just abuse and battery, but like strangling, strangling her. Mm -hmm. That's obviously that's pretty bad. Yep. And um, yesterday, did you see that video that 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 those people dug up yesterday? The the of that interview with him. I I read the was this the one that has the misogynistic quotes from it? Yeah, I mean that's it's one of these things, and f both for you, but for our even more yeah. for our listeners, you should watch the video because it's the the quotes are pretty bad you know mm -hmm. women tyrants not going to take it anymore yep. men we need uh, men to protect us from the dinosaurs well i mean there's this thing about yeah women <laughs> women used to like men being strong because it was to protect them from the dinosaurs We're like okay well <laughs> you know maybe missed, missed in science class i mean that's sort of funny <laughs> but like you know a lot of people talk like that again you have to watch it because those those charges of attacking his wife, of strangling his wife are not proven. They're not even charged in the court of law. But these quotes from him made him sound, it, it makes those charges sound deeply believable. Not just believable, it almost sounds like he's coming down off being hyped up from strangling her. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's this stuff about um, men not being enslaved to narcissistic, uh, uh, mean women and all, all, I mean, it's like the dude, like, you know, 
keep your distance. This guy's out of control kind of mm-hmm. kind of sound. Um, like he had this, this one line where he said, you know, I, I'll be on Instagram and I'm, 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 I'm uh, you know, browsing through and I see these women with their duck faces and their selfies and I just get, I get so mad. And you're like, dude, <laughs> if, you, if you're like browsing Instagram and you're seeing women's selfies and you get mad, yeah. Dude, that's a bad sign. That's right. a really bad sign. And like, you're going to run for Senate? Like, really? Um, so yeah, there's there's that. And I guess, um, I'm not sure who his, I mean, Trump is really, I, I think it's fair to say that like every every Republican but Trump is like, dude, let's not nominate this guy. Right. Which is, you know, setting off some scramble to see you know, who else is it going to be? Um, I saw Dr. Oz is is contemplating throwing oh his hat into the ring, despite the fact that his ties to Pennsylvania seem tenuous at best. Has <laughs> he know? ever even visited Pennsylvania? What are his ties? I think, I think he, I saw a picture of him atop a horse. And I believe the context was that his, he was, he was gallivanting around his, grandparents property in Pennsylvania perhaps um I think I think that's the the strongest tie that I saw this is like as a kid his grandparents had a horse farm in Pennsylvania well, the picture kind of him of atop the horse is very current but oh okay got it got it got it well who <laughs> yeah. yeah it's he does it's funny that that um Trump you know like Herschel I mean he kind of mm-hmm. it's not surprising because Trump lives in the world of fame yep and you know Dr. Oz he's that thing, you know, I guess he is, I was going to say he's not really a doctor. He is a doctor, but he has sort of, you know, de-doctorized himself with all of his embrace of quack medicines and all, mm-hmm, you know, all right. sorts of, all, all sorts of stuff. Um, you, you, you're from Pennsylvania. I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, give us some Pennsylvania color. You know, we have a, <laughs> this is, you got to, you got to, you got to, uh, you know, give us that insight. Well, you know, what's kind of funny about this to me is that you look at, um, I was just trying to bring up really quick. I, I couldn't find it, but Kellyanne Conway also retweeted or boosted someone yesterday who it looks like Republicans are scrambling to try to get behind. Um, I couldn't bring it up quickly. I think he was some kind of like. And not I me, mean, not Parnell. So not she, Parnell, even an alternative to Parnell. Yeah. Interesting. So even though she's, you know, she hasn't broken from Trump, but even she, I mean, it's pretty. I think people are reading the tea leaves a little bit here. Um, yeah, I don't know who else. Um, it's funny. I mean, this, this is the kind of, it really, there, there are one of the big things that people took from Youngkin's victory was that, Hey, you can kind of have your cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm, you can supercharge mm-hmm. the Trump base. And that really is the story of what happened in Virginia. I mean, there really was not a democratic fall off. The Democrats did turn out if, if, you know, relative to other recent cycles it's just that there was a an avalanche of turnout in rural red virginia mm-hmm. so he had that but also was able to keep trump at a distance for the suburbs basically um and but you know you've got that uh you've you've got that um thing with trump where like let's say that other republicans unite together and get behind some other sort of business, you know, kind of bland businessman type. Mm-hmm. Um, and they defeat this Parnell guy. He's not going to, I mean, if you see this guy, he's not going to go, oh, okay, I guess I, I wasn't the choice of the people of, <laughs> of Pennsylvania. So I'm going to, I'm going to get behind the new guy. And, and that's not going to happen because he's a hothead and a freak, as you can see with like, you know, uh, allegedly trying to strangle his wife and, and, and in this, in this nutball interview and Trump is too. So, so. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. Now, we also have to remember that, you know, many people, and I'll include myself in this list, kind of thought the same with Trump. Right. Uh, he's crazy and he's not going to get, he's not going to survive a general election. Obviously, he did. Um, not everybody's Trump, though. Uh, and and that's, uh, that's, that's a hard sell in, 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 in Pennsylvania. And they've got some good Democrats running yeah. for that seat, too. Yeah, that's what I was going to mention. Um, keep in mind, this seat is open because Pat Toomey, the Republican, is retiring. Uh, So on the Democratic side so far, I think the the biggest name contenders are John Fetterman, who I I don't know how how much 
out of state versus in state because he's become he's become a, a popular figure in state at least. And part of that is just his his look like he's enormous. He's got a lot of tattoos. He's got a beard. He hates wearing suits. You know, he comes wearing like denim shorts to everything. Um, and he's also the lieutenant governor of the state. Yeah, which is funny because the Tom Wolf, the governor, is much more your kind of typical looking politician. You know, he's got like, gray hair, he wears suits, and then it's him with this huge guy who's wearing casual attire kind of looming over him. And, so and, and let's be honest, with a guy who like looks like a Neanderthal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and here, here's the thing. I mean, the thing if you, I, I think most people who follow democratic politics closely nationwide are familiar with him mm-hmm. um, far more in Pennsylvania. I think the key, if you, if you're not familiar with him, if you have not seen him, it's probably a little, little much for me to say Neanderthal, although it's, 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 there's something to that. I think the key with him and one of the things that he's very attractive to a lot of Democrats is that if you see John Fetterman, you would, the first thing you would say, Trumper. Mm-hmm. Like if just visually, you know, kind of big bulking guy, shaved head, um, you know, uh, a very you. kind of populist demeanor, talk, all that kind of stuff. And, but he's a, he's a very progressive Democrat. And, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, very progressive. Um, and his kind of pet issues up till this point have, you know, he's very all in on marijuana legalization and uh, criminal justice reform. That was kind of his his big pet projects um, when he was mayor of what, Braddock? I think Braddock. And, and for, for people outside, outside of Pennsylvania, a kind of prototypical declining industrial Midwestern mm-hmm. city where everybody's leaving, where the businesses have left and trying to revitalize and, um, you know, keep one of those communities going. And he was mayor of that town for a number of years. And that's kind of where his political, what his political brand and political rise have all been about right. and how he ended up as, as, you know, as being a candidate for lieutenant governor. Yeah. So he's interesting. And I think, you know, people like, like you say, his kind of plain spoken, you know, it, it's funny. It is the kind of this like Trump populist model, but with super progressive politics rather than, you know, kind of thinly veiled, you know, bigotry type thing. Um, and also his, his wife is an immigrant and she is very kind of active in politics as well. And people really, really have taken to her as well. So that's going on. I think in what scant polling there has been, which again, you know, far out from the midterms, not a ton of polling yet, but he has been leading, which is interesting because Connor Lamb, who is who you would, the more prototypical candidate for this race, I would say, you know, a, a moderate in the house, very kind of, you know, doesn't, doesn't inflame tempers one way or another. He got into the race, I mean, a while ago at this point. And isn't he, he's like, has a, like a suburban Pittsburgh district. It's in the Western part of the state, I think, but I don't know exactly yeah. where it is. It's, um, it's at least in Western Pennsylvania. I assume it has to be, it, it must be adjacent or, you know, kind of in, near Pittsburgh yeah, or something you're right, like that. It is near Pittsburgh, the 17th. Right. District. So a swing district that he, and he's a mod, you know, kind of another one of these, uh, um, you know, moderates in the, in the house. And then there's another, there's another candidate, um, an African American candidate who I don't know. It has also oh. maybe a state legislator or something like that. Um, I don't know a lot about his, can- but there's a lot of the Democrats have a number of candidates, each of whom, in isolation, would have a lot of logic for them. Let's like, say, oh, that you know that person mm-hmm. is good would be a good candidate, and they have a, um, you know, I- either an embarrassment of riches or. You know, when you have a lot of when you have a lot of candidates, each of whom have a good argument. Oh, I should be the nominee, and what mm-hmm. I represent should be the nominee. That can that can get ac- you know that can get acrimonious, right? And the the person you're talking about is Malcolm Kenyatta. Yes, and um, he's, is he a state legislator? I think he's, or maybe he's like vice in the chair state. of the Philadelphia delegation. Um, right, so that must be he's a state state legislator from 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 uh, right. Philly. Yep. 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 In the general assembly. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that is, uh, it's just an, a kind of an interesting 
to get back to how we got on this point, it's just another example of like, you know, an open seat in Pennsylvania is primo territory. You know, if, if the political climate is bad for Democrats come 2022, Republicans are going to be all in. It's not like that's an easy seat to win, you know, kind of in the best of years for Democrats. Yeah. yeah. But meanwhile, it's just, you know, as of now, again, still fairly far out. Not like there's not time for them to coalesce against someone else, but or behind someone else. But their first choice is kind of very publicly, embarrassingly exploding all over the stage. And meanwhile, Democrats, I think, have, you know, a, a, a hearty selection of people who all kind of would make sense for the state, but in different flavors of the yeah. kind that would yeah. make sense. Okay. So. So, yeah, and I just wanted to give just a quick reminder to kind of wrap this up of the terrain that we'll be watching and that I'm sure we'll like kind of keep talking about as we do these episodes, which is that we've got the open seat in Pennsylvania. We've got the open seat in North Carolina because Richard Burr is retiring. Right. right, So that's going to be another big one. We might have an open seat in Wisconsin, depending on what Ron Johnson decides to do, which he's been kind of very coy about. And then for Democrats, the really competitive terrain that they'll be defending, which right now, um, the Sabato's crystal ball at the University of Virginia has rated as like total toss ups in the middle would be in Georgia, Raphael Warnock has to defend his seat because he only got that partial term. Um, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, and then Mark Kelly in Arizona. So the poor and Maggie Hassan. I don't know if she's in the right. same toss-up category, but that's another. I guess that, that's, yeah. that just I guess more just depends on who the Republican is at right, this point. But right, yeah, yeah, right, right. No, I mean those 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 two. Um, you know the Georgia and Arizona ones. That's that's tough. Those are those only poor guys. They just got in. And now they have yeah, to run and again. I mean those. Look, those are you know maybe 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 part of a trend that they're that they're kind of trending blue. And I think those states are both at least trending in a purple direction. Mm-hmm. But twenty twenty two is not going to be a good test of it, right? Or you know not going to be a happy test of it. And um, so those really, I mean. Both of those guys, uh, Mark Kelly and Raphael Warnock, and Mark Kelly in Arizona, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, have to hope that the that the environment shifts significantly. Not not in a way that's impossible, but it has to get a little better than it is now. And then it's still going to be a really tough, you know, r- really tough fight. So those are those are challenges. Exactly, and it's you know it's funny. The other thing that it's going to have to depend on a climate change, not climate change, a change in the political climate. Or Republicans fielding terrible candidates, and you well, know we're too early to say that that's what's happening. Well, but. I'm I'm curious with Georgia because Herschel Walker, who again to my like you know Gen X mind is still I see him as a as a running back. I think he's <laughs> running back. Um, as but you know as a as a football guy. Uh, but Trump is a hundred percent behind him, and the what it seems like at least is that. This had been another case where Trump was behind him, but all the sort of the the mainline Republicans like no 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 let's not mm-hmm. do this. But I think McConnell in the last couple of weeks has sort of been coming. I think they recognize that Trump has already made it a fait accompli, basically, right. and so it, nothing is nothing is achieved by taking a a a an iffy candidate and adding party division to it. Having said this, Walker has these. Like a lot of history of of um, seemingly credible accusations of threatening to shoot his wife or girlfriends or or and I guess he's he's um, uh, allegedly struggled with um, dissociative personality disorder, which is what used to be you know uh, called multiple personality disorder, um, a, which which I guess possibly has been you know if you want to be. Uh, Take a sympathetic view. Maybe has has contributed to some of this, you know, kind of wild behavior and threats and 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 stuff. But you know, threatening to shoot your wife in the in the forehead. I mean, that's not that's not something a lot of voters want to get behind. That we don't think of that as as like senatorial behavior. Um, he obviously has the you know football hero, right? I mean, got mm-hmm. ha- got that whole thing. Um, but that's he. Um, He's kind of like another Sean Parnell. I mean, that that's that's kind of 
there, there's a history of some pretty out of control, unacceptable behavior that, that, you know, that's, a, I would imagine that is some level of challenge, even in a state like Georgia, where in a Republican year, Republicans got the, ins, you know, got the inside track. Right. Okay. So let's take some questions. The first kind of connects right to what we've been talking about, but I'm interested to hear Josh kind of your personal take, which we didn't get into so much. But this is from Joshua, who says, <laughs> in a in a relatable phrasing, I haven't been following every twist and turns in the Democrats' legislative purgatory. It's too depressing. But can someone explain to me how BBB, which is the reconciliation bill, has any chance of passing now that Dems have given up their last leverage? So obviously, we talked about that pretty uh, extensively. But what's your you know, best prognosticating at this point? Like, do you think, do you think Manchin and Cinema will let reconciliation pass ultimately? Yes, I think they will. I do um, too. I am relatively confident of that. Um, and again, going back to what I said before, I think this was the right idea to go ahead and pass this bill um, for a few reasons. One is this was cratering the Democrats standing with the public at large. Mm -hmm. It was the, the, the impasse was deeply demoralizing Democrats. It was, um, taking not strongly partisan affiliated voters and just showing them that the Democrats are weak and feckless. Like who cares what they want to do? They're obviously not able to get anything done. That is mm -hmm. also deeply damaging. And they, we're running out of time to shift this. So I think you have to assume that those two do want to, are willing to pass a small version of the Build Back Better agenda. And now <laughs> that's, that's assuming a lot, that's trusting a lot given what we've seen from them. But I do put a, a lot of Trust, trust in the instincts of Biden, Pelosi, Schumer, that they have a feel for what is going on here. And um, look, I don't like giving up leverage. That is just kind of like characterologically against my, how I operate in the world. Um, taking things on, on hope, uh, believing people who have not necessarily acted in a way to be totally believable. Um, but I think we came down to a point where was the progressives holding out on this? Was it advancing the ball? Or might it advance the ball to give these guys what they want, get out of the mode of standoff, and um, try to move forward? And it seemed to me, it was clear the holding out was not advancing the ball. It just wasn't. It was not working. And will the other approach work? I can't, certainly can't, can't guarantee that, but I think it will. And not working versus probably will work, probably will work is better than not working. That's kind of where I come down as well, though. If I was a House progressive, I probably would have voted no. I mean, I, and I get why they did. And I think it, makes sense, you know, it, but I also kind of understand why the majority of progressives were like, we're going to now kind of put the onus on the president and congressional leadership to deliver. So we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> we will see. I, for what it's worth, I am cautiously optimistic that basically the current thing will pass. Yeah, I am too. Okay, a question from Paul. How can the left change the conversation from the Republican talking points that suck up so much of the discourse, like critical race theory, let's go Brandon and every other outrage they can think of? Um, all I see is kind of laughter, eye rolling and continuing to fight over Build Back Better, which doesn't seem to be changing what people are talking about. It's funny. I feel like this is such a, this came up a lot after Virginia and continues to be one of the most fundamental problems for Democrats. And I think much of it is rooted. I mean, we can't talk about this without talking about the fact that Republicans have a whole right wing media ecosystem at their fingertips for which Democrats just don't have any matching thing, you know? So it's hard because there's a world where critical race theory is like, the topic du jour every single day. 
And there's not really a good kind of built in way for Democrats to combat that with their own left wing media machine. So then you're left with a choice of you're communicating on these more kind of like mainstream channels. How do you combat the stuff that's being produced by, you know, Tucker Carlson for this more sober minded medium and audience? And I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, obviously there is a there is a massive right wing media infrastructure, and that is just a fundamental imbalance in the in the media ecosystem in the United States. That's first of all. Another big thing is that the mainstream media, even though it is disproportionately populated by people who probably vote Democrat in most cases, is in many ways still wired for the Republican Party, and that is. In some ways, that is a bigger deal than the existence of Fox and 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 talk radio. They are both extremely important. With let's go Brandon and Big Bird and stuff, a lot of that is just sort of right wing nonsense and bullshit that that should just be ignored. The critical race theory thing, I think, people need to look at that a little differently. There are there has been uh, in many parts of the country. In the last two years, coming out of the pandemic, coming out of what happened with George Floyd, to reassess how we talk about race in schools, how we deal with equity in schools. Um, th that is a fact. That is not made up. And many of us think that is a good thing, right? So I think we kind of distract ourselves or fool ourselves getting too deep into is critical race theory being taught in this or that school. It's just a label for are we talking about race in a different way, in a more totalizing way in the public schools? And we are. And many of us think that is important and a good thing. And there's a backlash against it, a big backlash against it. So I don't think we should get too hung up on, oh, they say critical race theory is being taught in the schools and that's not true and it's misinformation. It is, but the reality is this backlash. And that is, that is in many ways not surprising. Um, that is just a fact that has to be grappled with. And even one thing, you know, we talk about critical race theory. One of the, I'm not an expert on critical race theory. I have not read all the seminal texts. But I have a, a basic understanding of, of, of the role of that movement within academics and within activism. And one of the, one of the themes of, of critical race theory is in the civil rights era, um, in the 50s and 60s, and still in, in, in more recently, there was a model that racism is bad and it is largely because they're racist laws segregation, you know, legal segregation. And there are a lot of white people who are hostile to black people, think black people are inferior, don't like black people, hate black people. Okay. A lot of, a significant part of what critical race theory is about is to say the formal laws are only one part of it. And individual white people being hostile to black people is not really the most important or driving thing. It's that the whole system of laws, economy, the culture, that the disempowerment of black people vis-a-vis -vis white people is embedded in those things. And so racism is something that it's great if you hated black people and you kind of see the light and you change your mind, but that's not really the, the, the big issue. It's that, again, it is deeply embedded in society itself. And... For a lot of us, I think a lot of us consider that second understanding of what racism is, is just kind of obvious. Of course, it's not just that like, oh, your uncle is, you know, your, your, your crazy uncle is like, hates, you know, hates black people and tells bad jokes at the, at the dinner. It, it's, it's, it is a much deeper thing. Um, so in any case, with, with the whole critical race theory thing, I think we shouldn't spend too much time obsessing about, oh, it's not actually part of the curriculum because we are changing how we talk about race. Um, and in a lot of ways, that's something a lot of us think is good 
and and overdue and there's a backlash against it and and so that's that's um that's part of that the the final thing with with uh paul's question uh this is one of the reasons it was right to pass that bill because as long as the big story from the democratic party is arguing with each other week after week after week and doing nothing and not getting anything accomplished you are going to have the zone flooded with all these kind of you know nonsense things from republicans so you got to move on you got to start you know you got to start uh going on offense um it's it's hard the, the you know the democratic party also is democrats have to be tougher they have to be more aggressive it's also true that the democratic coalition is structured differently than the republicans and that makes that harder. It's not an excuse, but uh, the Democratic Party is a coalition of a lot of pretty disparate groups that don't that aren't don't have a lot in common, and that makes it hard for them to act in the ways that Republicans do because Republic the Republican Party is and has been for decades dominated by white conservative Christians. That's the bedrock of the Republican Party. And there are Republican Jews. There are a smattering of, of uh, African-American Republicans. There are more Hispanic Republicans. You know, it's not 100% that, but it's dominated by that. So if you're not a white conservative Christian and you're Republican, you're in their house. You know they call the shots. And that makes it that makes the Republican Party inherently more unified. It makes it much easier for them to go all in on something. It's harder for Democrats because it's actually kind of a, 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 a it's a coalition of pretty, pretty different groups. So there's, there's, you know, there's kind of inherent challenges, but, you know, I did a post last week. It's like, everybody's got to buck the fuck up, right? <laughs> and, 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 and uh, go on offense and uh, not whine and make excuses and move forward. All right, so uh, let me remind everybody that the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. It, you can get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. All right, later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 